Hello, this is Edwin J. Vieira, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 27th through 28th, 2023 issue of the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Prices, consumer spending, muddle, Fed path. Stubborn inflation will fuel policy debate on whether to raise rates at the June meeting. By Harriet Torrey and Nick Timoros. Consumers increased their spending sharply last month and inflation accelerated, potentially complicating the Federal Reserve's debate on whether to raise interest rates again in June. Consumer spending, the primary driver of economic growth, rose 0.8% in April, the Commerce Department said, up 0.1% increases in both February and March. Americans spent more last month on vehicles and services, such as insurance and health care. Adjusted for inflation, consumer spending rose 0.5% in April. The Fed's preferred gauge of consumer prices, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index, rose 4.4% from a year earlier, up from 4.2% in March. So-called core prices, which exclude volatile food and energy categories, rose 4.7% in April from a year earlier, up from 4.6% in March. Economists see core inflation as a better predictor of future inflation than overall inflation. From the prior month, April overall and core prices increased 0.4%, both accelerating compared with March increases. Inflation hasn't eased as much as Fed officials anticipated, which could fuel more difficult deliberations at policymakers' next meeting, June 13th through 14th, over whether to raise interest rates or hold them steady. The Fed lifted its benchmark federal funds rate by a quarter percentage point this month to a range between 5% and 5.25%, its 10th consecutive increase to combat high inflation. Over the past two weeks, some officials have said inflation and economic activity aren't slowing enough to justify an end to rate increases. But others, including Fed Chair Jerome Powell, have hinted that they might prefer skipping a rate rise in June to assess the effects of their past increases and the banking sector strains. They could then decide whether to resume increases in July. We've come a long way in policy tightening, and the stance of policy is restrictive, and we face uncertainty about the lagged effects of our tightening so far, and about the extent of credit tightening from recent bank stresses, Powell said earlier this month at a conference hosted by the central bank. Cleveland Fed President Loretta Mester said she wants to keep raising interest rates until she's confident that the next move is equally as likely to be an increase as a decrease. I don't think we're at that level, she said in a Friday interview, pointing to April spending and inflation figures. Mester said whether the Fed raised interest rates at its June or July meeting could depend in part on how Washington resolves the debt limit standoff. She added she would defer to Powell on the precise timing of the next rate increase. That's a chair decision, she said. Senior Fed officials have focused attention recently on prices for a subset of labor-intensive services by excluding food, energy, shelter, and goods. Officials believe that category could reveal whether wage pressures from the strong labor market are passing through to consumer prices, especially because they already expect prices of housing and goods to slow further. That reading rose 0.4% in April from the prior month and 4.6% from a year earlier, according to Wall Street Journal calculations. It has shown no meaningful improvement since officials began highlighting it late last year. U.S. economic growth cooled in the first quarter, but unemployment rates remains low and wage growth elevated, providing fuel for consumer spending. U.S. economic activity rose in May to its highest pace in 13 months. We're not in an economy that's retrenching, said Gregory Dacko, chief economist at the consulting firm EY Parthenon. 
The fight over lifting the government's borrowing limit is a threat to the economy. Negotiators on Friday were zeroing in on a deal ahead of June when the government could run short of money to pay all its bills on time. Prolonged talks could push the economy into recession, or should the government default on its debt trigger a financial crisis? Consumer sentiment fell 7% in May from a month earlier, wiping away nearly half all the gains notched since it hit a record low last June, according to the University of Michigan survey. The decline mirrored the drop of sentiment during the 2011 debt ceiling crisis, survey director Joanne Chu said Friday. Weaker consumer sentiment tied to the debt ceiling could hurt the broader economy, said Nancy Vanden Houten, an economist at Oxford Economics. If you're a person who relies on your social security and you have some real fear that you're not going to get your next check, then you might curtail your spending, she said. Americans are shelling out for summer travel, concert tickets, and cruises despite rising prices. The Commerce Department report showed consumers also spent more on big-ticket items, with spending on vehicles up solidly in April after two prior months of decline. Retailers, including Urban Outfitters, Best Buy, and Lowe's this past week, reported mixed signals on how shoppers are coping with rising prices. Urban Outfitters said its Anthropology and Free People stores saw double-digit sales gains last quarter, helping offset a drop in sales at its namesake brand. Lowe said inflation was affecting sales of big-ticket items and spending on do-it-yourself projects. Higher pay and savings are supporting the consumer. Personal income rose 0.4% in April for the largest increase since January as Americans' wages grew, the department said. The personal saving rate fell in April compared with the prior month, but remained well above levels at the end of last year. Sarah Cheney Camden contributed to this article. USS Arizona's last survivor, age 101, says he's not a hero. Written by Joseph Pisani. Luke Hunter was 20 years old when the warship he was on, the USS Arizona, was bombed by Japanese forces at Pearl Harbor in 1941. Now at 101, he's the last known survivor of the USS Arizona. He escaped the burning wreckage and helped crewmates to safety. Just don't call him a hero. I consider the heroes the ones that gave their lives, that never came home to their families, he said. They are the real heroes. The USS Arizona's bombing was the deadliest of the attacks that day, killing 1,117 people. It accounted for nearly half the 2,403 who died during Pearl Harbor. Contra was one of the 334 people assigned to the USS Arizona who survived. He became the last known survivor in April, after his former crewmate Ken Potts died at 102 years old. The warship's ammunition storage exploded during the bombings. The USS Arizona was so badly damaged that it was left to sink instead of being repaired. Its ruins are still underwater and viewable from the USS Arizona Memorial, which was built to hover over the warship. Concert helped pull crewmates out of the burning ship. As we guided these men to safety, more often than not, their burned skin would come off on our hands, Concert wrote in his 2021 book, Blue Concert Story. He often wondered why he made it out of the USS Arizona alive. God didn't want you to go that time, he said he told himself. There's a lot more for you to do for the country. A month after Pearl Harbor, Conter went to flight school. Working 12 to 14 hour days kept his mind off the death and destruction he saw on the USS Arizona. It helped out a lot to not think about it, he said. He got his pilot's wings in November 1942, he said, and was part of a team and flew Black Cat aircraft overnight doing bomb runs in the South Pacific. He said he was shot down twice, once in September 1943, and a second time three months later. Both times he used a lifeboat to get to shore. After World War II ended, he said he returned to California and signed up for the reserves. 
In the early 1950s, he served again in the Korean War. Kanta retired from the Navy in 1967 as a lieutenant commander. He became a real estate developer in California, where he still lives. As the number of the USS Arizona survivors dwindled to about 30, they would get together, Kanta said. The group got smaller through the years, from 13 to 5, and then to 2. Now I'm the only one still living, he said. Kanta said he didn't know Potts when they were on the USS Arizona, but became friends decades later. He talked to Potts on the phone every three weeks, asking him how he was, how he did, how he was doing, and whether he was eating well. Keep your spirits up, Kanta would say. He's now a new on a new mission. Go back to Pearl Harbor this December. It's been about four years since Kanta has been to the annual remembrance. His doctor has forbidden him from taking the nine hours of flights from his home to Grass Valley, California, to Hawaii. I'd like to go just once more, he said. Texas Lawmakers Weigh Impeaching Paxton by Elizabeth Fendel and Shannon Nungbandi. State lawmakers are set to consider impeachment proceedings against Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton that could immediately suspend the state's top lawyer from office. A committee of three Republican and two Democrat House lawmakers voted unanimously to draft the articles of impeachment Thursday, a day after a team of investigators spent three hours laying out years of crimes they said they believe Paxton has committed. The House panel ordered the investigation in March, after Paxton requested $3.3 million to settle a whistleblower lawsuit with several of his former top deputies, who brought many of the allegations to law enforcement in 2020. There are 20 articles of impeachment, including conspiracy, dereliction of duty, misapplication of public resources, unfitness for office, bribery, obstruction of justice, false statement, and conspiracy. Texas legislators are in the final days of their biannual session, Paxton was first elected in 2014. Paxton said in a tweet Thursday that four liberal lawyers put forward a House a report to the House General Investigating Committee based on hearsay and gossip parroting long disproven claims. Today, that committee has asked the Texas House of Representatives to use their unsubstantiated report to overturn the results of a free and fair election. Allegations of corruption and lawbreaking have long dogged the state's top lawyer. Paxton has been under indictment for securities fraud charges for eight years. Three years ago, eight top-ranked lieutenants at the Attorney General's office went to the FBI with reports that he was abusing the office to benefit a political donor. The move marks the first impeachment proceedings in Texas in decades, and the first against a politician of Paxton's stature in more than a century, said Cal Gillison, a professor of political science at Southern Methodist University. House members are likely to consider the articles of impeachment before the legislative session ends Monday. If the body votes to impeach Paxton, the state Senate would then have to tr have a trial on his removal from office. House Speaker Dade Phelan, a Republican with whom Paxton has tangled in recent days, indicated Wednesday that he would follow committee recommendations. Having heard and fully understood the evidence outlined today, Speaker Phelan stands in full support of the General Investigating Committee and the recommendations that may come as a result of the investigation, said his spokeswoman, Kate Whitman. Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, the Republican presiding officer of the Senate, said senators would be responsible, as any juror would be, in a television interview Thursday. I think the members will, will do their duty, he said. The most recent allegations surround Austin real estate developer Nate Paul, a friend of Paxton's, who donated $25,000 to his campaign. Investigators found that Paxton had sought to interfere with an FBI investigation of Paul. Paxton ultimately hired an outside lawyer, 
who had been recommended by Paul's attorneys to investigate the law enforcement taking action against Paul. That lawyer, who investigators said had no prosecutorial experience, issued 39 subpoenas to FBI agents and others involved in actions against Paul's companies, investigators said. As well as investigators said, as well, investigators said they found he pressed his staff to use the office to halt foreclosure sales, as various properties by Paul were coming under foreclosure. They also gave evidence that Paxton tried to have confidential law enforcement information released to Paul through his office. Investigators also told the committee that they found unusual intervention by Paxton into a lawsuit involving Paul and a nonprofit. They said they had confirmed Paul hired a woman with whom Paxton had been having an extramarital affair. The findings substantiated the allegations made by the office whistleblowers in 2020. A simple majority is required in the House to approve the impeachment. A two-thirds vote would be needed in the Senate to permanently remove Paxton. He would be suspended pending the Senate proceedings, legal experts said. Since then, the House has voted to impeach Paxton from his office. Work rules are key hang-up in talks. White House and Congressional Republicans racing to strike a deal to cut spending and raise the $31.4 trillion debt limit were butting heads over requiring more people to work to receive federal benefits. Negotiators hope to strike a deal soon in order to set up votes on the legislation next week. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen estimated Friday that the U.S. could run out of money to pay its bills if Congress doesn't act by June 5th, setting a more specific deadline for lawmakers to reach an agreement. We're going back on final important matters, and it's just not resolved, said Representative Patrick McHenry, a Republican of North Carolina, late Friday. These things take time. When asked whether the June 5th deadline changed the urgency of reaching a deal, McHenry said that it maintains and ensures the urgency, adding, we know of a solid day that we have to perform to. The Treasury had previously put the deadline as early June, saying it could come as soon as June 1st. Any legislation would likely take at least several days to pass both the House and Senate. Work requirements emerged Friday as a sticking point in the talks, which appeared to have made progress on a two-year agreement to cap spending and raise the borrowing limit, extending it to pass the 2024 election. Republicans are pushing to strengthen the work mandate on individuals without disabilities or dependents, something Democrats adamantly oppose. The final decision on work requirements could cause significant defections from either party, depending on what is included, despite a relatively small budgetary impact. When it comes to programs to help the most vulnerable in this country, I'm not going to be a cheap date, said Massachusetts Representative Jim McGavern, the top Democrat on the Rules Committee. <clears throat> I'm not going to be part of an effort that's going to hurt people. President Biden has indicated he won't consider a GOP proposal to impose new work requirements for Medicaid, a health care program for low-income and disabled people. However, he hasn't closed the doors firmly on changes to existing requirements for food aid and cash assistance programs. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. <clears throat> Including new requirements to the deal could cost Democratic support making the agreement harder to pass in the narrowly divided House. Progressive lawmakers and members of the Congressional Black Caucus have indicated that they would likely vote against a bill that strengthens work requirements. A debt limit bill Republicans passed last month raised the age threshold for the existing work requirements for able-bodied adults without dependence on the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance, or SNAP, program, which provides food assistance for low-income households. 
Under rules resuming in all states by July, able-bodied low-income adults between the ages of 18 and 49 and without dependents can receive benefits for no more than three months within a three-year period, unless they're working or enrolled in a work program. The GOP legislation would raise that age to 55 and restrict states' ability to waive the work requirements for food stamps and people in areas of high and sustained unemployment. Earlier Friday, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, expressed confidence that negotiators were working through their differences, but work requirements remain a stumbling block. We worked through the night last night. I thought we made progress yesterday. I want to make progress again today, and I want to solve this problem, he said. I do not think it's right that you borrow money from China to pay people to stay home that are able-bodied with no dependents on the couch. That is not the American way. Beefing up work requirements would mark a political win for Republicans, but do relatively little to reduce federal spending. The changes to the cash assistance program, for example, would save only $6 million over 10 years, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Raising the age for work requirements to 55 would reduce spending by $11 billion over 10 years and cause about 275,000 Americans a month to lose access to food stamps, according to the CBO. The spending deal under discussion would cap federal spending, but would include increases for the military and veterans, one of the people said. Setting the top-line numbers for spending has consequences for how military spending, veterans' benefits, and non-defense programs like early childhood education and cancer research are funded. Also up for discussion is rescinding some of the $80 billion that Congress approved last year to expand the Internal Revenue Service, which the agency had planned to use to boost tax enforcement and modernize its technology, People Familiar said. Republicans voted earlier this year to claw back most of the money, a move that would be a net increase in the budget deficit because it would shrink tax revenue. Written by Natalie Andrews, David Harrison, and Christina Peterson, with contributions from Sabrina Siddiqui and Richard Rubin. North Dakota governor set to join GOP race. Written by John McCormick. North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum is poised to enter the Republican presidential nomination race and is planning a June 7th event in Fargo, North Dakota to make a major announcement sources familiar with his plans told the Wall Street Journal. The wealthy former software entrepreneur from a heavily Republican state is expected to join a rapidly expanding GOP field that added two entrants, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis this week. While former President Donald Trump has dominated the field in national polls, GOP activists in states that hold the first nominating contest have expressed an openness to other candidates. Known for a casual style and non-inflammatory rhetoric, Burgum would stand in stark contrast to Trump. In a recent interview with the editorial board of the Forum in Fargo, Burgum raised concern about the country's political polarization and suggested 60% of Americans are part of a, quote, silent majority, not well represented. First elected in 2016, Burgum, 66 years old, isn't well-known nationally and would face a challenge building name recognition in a field with much known, better-known candidates. But he could use his fortune to help boost his prospects. Two people familiar with his planning, speaking on the condition of anonymity to discuss private deliberations, said he's always invested in his companies and campaigns and would do the same if he runs. They also said he has already filmed television ads for a potential bid and that Fargo was picked for the announcement because it's close to his tiny hometown of Arthur. Fargo is where Burgum built Great Plains software from a small startup into a company acquired by Microsoft for $1.1 billion in 2001. In April, 
Burgum signed into law a near total ban on abortion that permits the procedure in case of rape and incest only in the first six weeks of pregnancy. He also signed legislation this year that prohibits public schools and government entities from requiring teachers and employees to refer to transgender people by the pronouns they use. And now, U.S. Watch in Iowa. <clears throat> law limits gender identity instruction. Iowa teachers will be banned from raising gender identity and sexual orientation questions with students through grade 6, and all books depicting sex acts will be removed from school libraries under a bill Republican Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds signed Friday. Republicans frame their action as an effort to ensure that parents can oversee what their children are learning in school and that teachers not delve into topics such as gender and sexuality. School administrators also would be required to notify parents if students asked to change their pronouns or names. Religious texts will be exempt from the library ban on books depicting sex acts. Democrats and LGBTQ groups argued that the laws would hurt children by limiting their ability to be open with teachers about gender and sexuality issues and to see their lives reflected in books and other curriculum from the Associated Press. In Montana, fire retardant drops allowed to continue. A judge ruled Friday that the U.S. government can keep using chemical retardant to fight wildfires despite finding that the practice pollutes streams in western states in violation of federal law. Halting the use of the red slurry material could have resulted in greater environmental damages from wildfires, said U.S. District Judge Dana Christensen in Missoula, Montana. The judge agreed with U.S. Forest Service officials who said dropping retardant from aircrafts into, water, into areas with waterways was sometimes necessary to protect lives and property. The ruling came after environmentalists sued following revelations that the Forest Service dropped retardant into waterways hundreds of times over the past decade. Government officials say chemical fire retardant can be crucial to slowing down the advance of dangerous blazes. And in Florida, two killed as plane crashes at airport. Two people died Friday when a small plane crashed at a small South Florida airport, Palm Beach County Sheriff's officials said. The crash at the Palm Beach County Park Airport in Montana happened shortly after 11 a.m., officials said. Television helicopter footage showed the Cessna Skyhawk broke into several pieces well off the runway. Names of the victims weren't immediately released. Flightware.com, an online flight tracking service, shows that the plane was taking off or had just taken off when it crashed. The flight records show that the single propeller plane typically made several short flights each day, taking off and then returning to the Lantana Airport, or occasionally flying to other small airports in the area. The National Transportation Safety Board will investigate along with the Sheriff's Office. Obituaries. Nicholas Gray, from 1937, passed in 2023. Hot dog entrepreneur, hated raising prices. Bored at his job as a stockbroker in the early 1970s, Nicholas Gray was open to alternatives. He spotted a papaya king selling hot dogs and papaya juice in Manhattan and was impressed with the throngs lining up for service. He signed up for a papaya king franchise in 1973. Two years later, Gray opened his own independent shop, Gray's Papaya, at the same location near the corner of Broadway and 72nd Street in Manhattan. He cut the hot dog price from 75 cents to 50 cents and kept it there until 1999. A sign over the door proclaimed, when you're hungry or broke, just in a hurry. Low prices helped create a bond with customers, and it pained Gray later when he had to raise them. Rather than doing so in the usual stealth fashion, he hung up banners apologizing for higher prices. We are getting killed by galloping inflation and food costs, one sign said. Unlike politicians, we cannot raise our debt ceiling and are forced to raise our very reasonable prices. Please don't hate us. 
Grey's Papaya served as a setting for scenes in movies including Fools Rush In, You've Got Mail, and on the TV show Sex and the City. Grey died on May 19th at a hospital in New York. He was 86 and had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease nearly six years ago. Written by James R. Haggerty. Opinion. The Weekend Interview with Henry Kissinger. Written by Tunku Vardajan. The Great Strategist Turns 100. Eight years. That's all the time Henry Kissinger was in public office. From January 1969 to January 1977. Mr. Kissinger was first National Secretary Advisor and Secretary of State under Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford, holding both titles concurrently for more than two years. He was 53 when he cleared his desk at Foggy Bottom to make way for Cyrus Vance. In the four and a half decades since, he has worked as a consultant on strategic relations to governments around the world and consolidated beyond dispute his reputation, first earned when he co-piloted the U.S. opening to China in 1972, the preeminent philosopher of global order, and the most original erudite and hard-nosed statesman of his era. Mr. Kissinger turns 100 on Saturday, and his appetite for the world he spent a lifetime setting to rights is still zestful. We meet in his office four days before his birthday, and he offers swift proof not just of his charm, but of his facility as a diplomat. You never came to see me in my office he scolds, reminding me of an invitation he'd made three years ago over dinner at the home of a common friend, my only previous meeting with Mr. Kissinger. I dismissed the invitation at the time as a grand old man's courtesy to a stranger. The dinner was with Charles Hill, a one-time speechwriter for Mr. Kissinger and later a senior advisor to another Secretary of State, George Schultz. The memory of Hill, who died in 2021, prompts Mr. Kissinger to offer an observation on Schultz, who lived to be 100 and also died in 2021. Schultz's approach to international affairs was really not the same as mine, Mr. Kissinger said. He looked at the economic motivations. I look at the historical and moral motivations of the people involved. What Mr. Kissinger sees when he looks at the world today is disorder. Almost all major countries, he says, are asking themselves about their basic orientation. Most of them have no internal orientation and are in the process of changing or adapting to new circumstances by which he means a world riven by competition, driven by competition between the U.S. and China. Big countries such as India, also a lot of subordinate ones, do not have a dominant view of what they want to achieve in the world. They wonder if they should modify the actions of the superpowers, a word Mr. Kissinger says he hates, or strive for a degree of autonomy. Some major nations have wrestled with these choices ever since the debacle of the Suez intervention in 1956, while Britain chose close cooperation with the U.S. thereafter, France opted for a strategic autonomy, but of a kind that was closely linked to the U.S. on global matter on matters that affected the global equilibrium. The French desire to determine its own global policy gave rise to awkwardness with President Emmanuel Macron's recent visit to Beijing. While critics say he pandered to the Chinese, Mr. Kissinger sees an example of French strategic autonomy at work. In principle, if you have to conduct Western policy, you would like allies that only ask you about what contribution they can make to your direction. But that is not how nations have been formed, and so I'm sympathetic to the Macron approach. It doesn't bother him that Mr. Macron, on his recent return from Beijing, called on his fellow Europeans to be more than just Americans, America's followers. Mr. Kissinger doesn't take it literally. Besides, I'm not here as a defender of French policy. 
and he appears to attribute Mr. Macron's words to cultural factors. The French approach to discussion is to convince their adversary of the opposite number of his stupidity. The British, quote, try to draw you into their intellectual framework and to persuade you. The French try to convince you of the inadequacy of your thinking. And what is the American way? The American view of itself is righteousness, says the man famed for his real politic. We believe we are unselfish, that we have no purely national objectives, and also that our national objectives are achieved in foreign policy, with such difficulty that when we expose them to modification through discussion, we get resentful of opponents. And so, we expect that our views will carry through the day, not because we think they're intellectually superior, but because we think the views in themselves should be dominant. It's an expression of strong moral feelings, coupled with great power, but it's usually not put forward as a power position. When asked whether this American assertion of inherent unselfishness strikes a chord with other countries, Mr. Kissinger is quick to say, no, of course not. Does Xi Jinping buy it? No, absolutely not. That is the inherent difference between us. Mr. Xi is strong is stronger globally than any previous Chinese leader, and he is confronted in the last two U.S. presidents, men who want to exact concessions from China and announce them as concessions. This is quite the wrong approach in Mr. Kissinger's view. I think the art is to present relations with China as a mutual concern, in which agreements are made because both parties think it's the best for themselves. That's the technique of diplomacy that I favor. In his reckoning, Joe Biden's China policy is no better than Donald Trump's, it's been very much the same. The policy is to declare China as an adversary and then to exact from the adversary concessions that we think will prevent it from carrying out its domineering desires. Does Mr. Kissinger see China as an adversary? He chooses his words carefully. I see China in the power it represents as a dangerous, potential adversary. He puts notable stress on the qualifier. I think it may come to conflict. Here, we have two societies with a global historic view though different culture confronting each other. Mr. Kissinger contrasts his view from that of others who start with a presumption of permanent hostility and therefore believe it must be confronted everywhere simultaneously on every issue that arises. Mr. Kissinger believes that the two world wars should have taught that the price one pays, even with conventional technology, is out of proportion to most objectives that are achievable. But with today's weapons and with the growth within each society through cyber and biology to intrude into the other territory of the other, this kind of war will destroy civilization. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. To prevent war with China, then, the U.S. needs to refrain from being heedlessly adversarial and pursue dialogue instead. The most important conversation that can take place now is between the two leaders in which they agree that they have the most dangerous capabilities in the world and that they will conduct their policy in such a way that the military conflict with them is reduced. It sounds much like detente, the Cold War policy Mr. Kissinger pioneered. On the American side, he says, the danger is that in such discussions, the belief will arise that China has changed fundamentally and that we are in permanent peace and can disarm and therefore become weak. The peril of an opposite course is that aberrations lead to total war. I'm supposed to be a realist. This is my realistic belief. Mr. Kissinger says that Charles Hill, who helped him write World Order in 2014, would say that the Chinese position is irredeemable. But I say, even if that is true, 
We're best off getting into the position of conflict from having attempted each con every conceivable alternative other than appeasement, so this is not an appeasement doctrine. Mr. Kissinger demurs when asked when con what concessions the U.S. might expect from China. I'm not saying now which of their pos positions they should alter. I frankly don't look at it that way. We have, he concedes, a problem in the South China Sea. I would say whether we can find some way of solving that within the freedom of the seas formula. If we can't, then there will be confrontations. He calls Taiwan an insoluble problem, to which there is no solution other than time. He would therefore welcome a formula that maintains the present status for a period of years in which, for example, the two sides will not issue threats against each other or will limit their deployments against each other. This would have been a careful... This would have to be carefully phrased, so that we do not say we are treating Taiwan as a country, but those are conceivable, I'm not saying achievable, objectives. Mr. Kissinger thinks Mr. Xi would be open to such discussions, but not if we come to him and say, you have to show us progress in the following ten fields, after which we will reward you. That will not work. When asked to size up China's ambitions, he deadpans. I don't think they desire to spread Chinese culture around the world. They seek security, not world domination, but they do expect to be dominant, the dominant power in Asia. Would India and Japan be expected to accept that? The ideal position, Mr. Kissinger says, is that China so visibly strong that will occur through the logic of events. He foresees that Japan, in response, will develop its own weapons of mass destruction. He offers a time frame of three or five or seven years for that to happen. I'm not urging it, he stresses, and if you can, you should make that clear in your article. I'm trying to give you an analysis. The free world depends on U.S. leadership, as it has since the end of World War II. But Mr. Kissinger is worried. We have no grand strategic view, he says of the U.S., so every strategic decision has to be wrested out of body politic that does not organically think in these categories. When the U.S. does adopt a strategy, it has a tendency to go into on the basis of overreaching moral principles, which we then apply to every country in the world with equal validity. America has its strengths. When we challenge the mobilization of resources to resist the challenge, it's comparatively easy. But threats are interpreted in terms of physical conflict. So, until such conflict approaches, it's harder to mobilize, and so to act on the basis of assessment and conjecture is harder in America than in comparable countries. Mr. Kissinger does believe, however, that the Biden administration has done many things right. I support them on Ukraine, he says. From my perspective, the Ukraine war is won in terms of precluding a Russian attack on allied nations in Europe. It's highly unlikely to occur again, but there are other dangers that can rise out of Russia. As we're ending the war, we should keep in mind that Russia was a major influence on the region for hundreds of years, caught in its own ambivalence between admiration and feelings of inferiority or danger coming from Europe. That ambivalence, he suggests, was behind this war. I think the offer to put Ukraine into NATO was a grave mistake and led to this war, but its scale and its nature is a Russian peculiarity, and we were absolutely right to resist it. He now believes that Ukraine, now the best-armed country in Europe, belongs in the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. I'm in the ironical position that I was alone when I opposed membership, and I'm nearly alone when I advocate NATO membership. He would like the terms of the war's end to include the return of, to Ukraine of all territory, with the controversial exception of Crimea. For Russia, the loss of Sevastopol, which was always not Ukrainian in history, 
would be such a come down that the cohesion of the state would be in danger. And I think that's not desirable for the world after Ukraine. Mr. Kissinger leaves no doubt that he believes in a Pax Americana and in the need to defend the areas of the world essential for American and democratic survival. But the ability to execute it politically, he says, has declined sharply, and that is our overriding problem now. He ascribes this political weakness to a decline in belief in the U.S. in its own historical ambitions and institutions. There's no element of pride and direction and purpose left, he laments as American leaders grapple with angst generated by events of 300 years ago. Alongside that, there isn't enough common purpose and principle across partisan divides that weakens democratic resolve and the ability to act in the shared national interest. Even in my day, it used to be possible to talk to groups of senators and not guarantee acceptance, but guarantee some willingness to find common ground. A cross-partisan team like Harry S. Truman and Arthur Vandenberg, a Democratic president and a Republican Senate Foreign Relations Committee chairman, working together to rebuild Europe and win the Cold War, would be all but improbable today. Mr. Kissinger believes that what's needed, and that's what's needed, and that we have to find a way to recreate the older forms of patriotic collaboration. There has to be something, some level, in which the society comes together on the needs of its existence. Mr. Vardajan, a journal contributor, is a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and New York University's Law School's Classical Liberal Institute. On the exchange, the score, the business week in six stocks, target retreats, Zoom slows, NVIDIA capitalizes on AI boom. To start, PDC Energy was up 7.2%. Chevron's doubling down on shale. The oil giant is acquiring rival driller PDC Energy, which holds stakes in Texas and Colorado. In buying PDC Energy, Chevron is aiming to build a bigger foothold in two prolific oil patches, particularly the Denver-Julesburg shale basin. The tie-up comes after big oil firms ranked in record profits in 2022 as oil and gas prices hit multi-year highs following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now the companies are flush with cash, and investors are watching for a potential wave of deals, deal-making. PDC Energy shares increased 7.2% on Monday. Abercrombie & Fitch Abercrombie shares soared after the specialty apparel and accessories retailer reported a surprise fiscal first quarter profit. Rising demand for dresses and pants drove an unexpected lift in first quarter sales, which boosted its revenue outlook for the year. The back at the office, they're celebrating with friends, Chief Executive Officer Fran Horowitz said on a call with analysts. They're going out and were there and servicing them for all those occasions. Abercrombie shares ended 31% higher on Wednesday, and Target is down this week. Target said it would remove some Pride Month products from stores after a backlash from customers caused, caused employees to feel unsafe. Target has always received some criticism for the LGBT-themed collection, but this month, but this month the negative reaction has taken a more aggressive turn, a spokeswoman said. Target will continue to sell pride-related items in stores, but will remove some that have been at the center of the most confrontational behavior. With Target shares were down 2.8% on Wednesday. PacWest Bank Corp. PacWest sparked a regional bank's rally to start the week. The beleaguered regional lender said it would sell a $2.6 billion property loan portfolio to Kennedy Wilson Holdings per regulatory filing. The bank has said it will explore asset sales to boost liquidity and slash its quarterly dividend to a penny a share. PacWest shares jumped 20% Monday, lifting other regional bank stocks that have been under pressure since the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks in March. 
Western Alliance shares gained 10%, while Key Corp shares added 4.7%. NVIDIA is riding high on the AI boom. The chip giant sued a strong sales issued a strong sales forecast due to rising demand for artificial intelligence technology. NVIDIA shares rocketed 24% higher Thursday, boosting shares of other chip makers and companies tied to AI. The stock move marks the largest one-day percentage increase for NVIDIA since 2016. With its finish Thursday, the chipmaker added $183.8 billion to its market capitalization per Dow Jones market data, ending just shy of joining a small club of companies worth more than $1 trillion. And Zoom Video Communications The one-time pandemic darling beat first quarter earnings expect expectations and reported an improved full-year forecast. But investors appeared to focus more on Zoom's outlook for the second quarter, which implied slowing growth of enterprise sales to large and mid-sized businesses. While the video conferencing company grew rapidly earlier in the pandemic amid a widespread shift to remote work, Zoom's growth has cooled as people have returned to offices and in-person activities in their daily life. Zoom shares dropped 8.1% Tuesday. This was all written by Francesca Fontana. Use a job with a lot of baggage. Companies try perks to woo luggage handlers. Written by Benjamin Katz. The first time the boss of one of the world's biggest airport baggage handlers walked in his employee's shoes, he decided they all need new ones. During a site visit on the tarmac at an airport in Cancun, Mexico, Hassan El Hori, chairman of Men's, Menzies Aviation, spent an hour wearing boots issued to the company's ground crews. They weren't very comfortable. People have to wear these boots for 8 or 10 hours a day, every single day, he says. The company is now finding a new supplier. Menzies is among companies in big airlines whose workers haul baggage, oversee check-in counters, refuel jets, and manage aircraft ramps around the world. As summer travel begins this Memorial Day weekend, these employers are deploying perks to attract and keep workers in some of the least glamorous airline industry jobs and prevent a repeat of the disarray last season. It's a tough sell. Wages are low, commutes to airports, often miles from downtown, are long. Nobody's going to tell you my dream job is to work on the ramp under an aircraft, says El Hori of Menzies. It's a lot nicer to work in Starbucks as a barista. Some companies have upped pay, but that's not always enough in a market with many less arduous jobs. British Airways this week unveiled a line of ground crew uniforms, included, including a quilted jacket with fleece lining lining created by a celebrity Seville Road tailor. In Germany, the air operator of Frankfurt Airport, Fraport, offers ice cream on the tarmac. Swissport, the biggest global contractor of airport handling staff, sends vans along the tarmac to distribute cold bottled water to staff and has erected tents where employees can get sprayed with cooling mist between aircraft turnarounds. In last summer's airport meltdowns, lines snaked out of terminals, flight cancellations and delays soared, and lost baggage became so widespread, many travelers resorted to carry-on only. Airlines, airports, and contractors such as Menzies let go of hundreds of thousands of workers when COVID-19 all but halted air travel. They've struggled to hire them all back since travel rebounded. Andrew Adagone was overseeing aircraft turnaround at Newark Liberty International Airport when he was laid off as the pandemic hit. He found a different career and better pay in cybersecurity. The long hours, the stress, and all that goes into it, and we're just not fairly compensated, he says. So I just did something else. A survey published by the International Air Transport Association found 60% of ground handling companies didn't have enough qualified staff to ensure smooth operations this summer. 
Jonathan Rodriguez, who worked as a ground handler for Swissport at LaGuardia Airport for the last 10 months, says he likes his job. Though, a lot of his colleagues don't stick around much longer than a few months, and some have walked straight off the tarmac, never to return. When an aircraft arrives, an overhead clock starts counting down, typically from 55 minutes. Once he and his workmates secure the plane, he'll climb into the belly of the aircraft and unload scores of cases, which he says weigh as much as 70 pounds. I don't know what people pack in their bags, but those bags are heavy, Rodriguez says. If he's working on Embraer's E-175, he must get on his knees to maneuver around the small belly space and regularly hits his head on the ceiling. He says his gear isn't fully waterproof and that between turnarounds, he spends some time in a break room where two or three staffers often end up sitting on the floor. At the end of the day, he says he's exhausted, dead. Swissport says it's revamping break rooms, including getting rid of old sofas, scrubbing walls, adding television sets, and providing ovens or microwaves for heating food, as well as coffee makers and desks and lockers. They get run down quickly, says Swissport chief executive Warwick Brady. The company also made pledges including promising advance notices of schedules, quick approval of holiday requests, and investment in its equipment and vehicles. Mr. Brady acknowledges many hires quit quickly after joining. It cost the company about $4,800 to hire and train each new recruit. Retention is absolutely critical, he says. British Airways, which has its own ground handling team, recently unveiled 20 ground staff garments, including the quilted jacket designed by Oswald Botang. The former Givenchy designer has dressed celebrities, including Mick Jagger and Will Smith. The uniform features a detachable tool belt and gloves that can be used with touchscreen devices. It was tested for torrential downpours in special showers and in freezers set at zero degrees Fahrenheit. Colleagues are genuinely excited, British Airways Chief Operating Officer René de Gru said in a written statement. The company celebrated the rollout with balloons and donuts with frosting designed to match the uniforms at its terminal at London Heathrow Airport. The airline also tweaked its family leave policies and offers a new menopause support program. In addition to boots, Menzies is working on new duds that have more pockets and more, vest, more vents, which are cooler and more comfortable. United Airlines, unable to hire ground handlers quickly enough, stateside, for its expanding hub in Denver, started recruiting in Guam in recent months. The airline offered $25,000 relocation bonuses and free flights and expenses for successful candidates and their families. Once in Denver, United arranged free lodging for more than two months. The airline said it received applications from 2,600 people, about 1.5% of Guam's population. Of those, close to 400 have been recruited to join United's ground handling team. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Wall Street Journal on the Niagara Frontier radio reading service. Ex-militia member gets more than eight years for role in January 6th riot, written by Jan Wolfe. A former member of the Oath Keepers militia was sentenced to eight and a half years in prison Friday for her role in the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol, about half the prison time the far-right group's founder got a day earlier. Jessica Watkins, a 40-year-old from Ohio, was sentenced at a federal courthouse just steps from the Capitol complex she stormed two years ago, along with other supporters of former President Donald Trump. A lesser sentence was imposed on another member of the group late on Friday. In November, a jury acquitted Watkins of seditious conspiracy, but found her guilty of obstructing Congress and interfering with police. 
Watkins was tried along with Stuart Rhodes, the founder of the Oath Keepers, and three other defendants. Of the five defendants in that trial, only Rhodes and another Oath Keepers member, Kelly Meggs, were convicted of seditious conspiracy, the most serious charge brought against January 6th defendants for plotting to forcefully disrupt the peaceful transfer of power by storming the Capitol to keep Trump in power despite his election loss. Meggs received a 12-year sentence on Thursday, hours after Rhodes received 18 years, the longest sentence yet imposed on any January 6th defendant. U.S. District Judge Amit Mehta, who oversaw the trial and this week's sentencing hearings, said that while Watkins committed lesser crimes than those two, she still played a leading role in a conspiracy to obstruct Congress's counting of the Electoral College votes. Nobody would suggest you're Stuart Rhodes, Mehta said during a hearing, but your role in these events is more than that of just a foot soldier. Watkins' lawyer had asked for a sentence of around five years, saying she had accepted responsibility for her actions. Watkins, a transgender woman, suffered, said she'd suffered harassment and abuse throughout her life because of her gender identity. This harassment caused her to leave the Army after enrolling at age 19, she said in a court filing. Judge Mehta said he was moved by her story but remained struck by a lack of contrition Watkins showed in messages sent after her arrest. According to prosecutors, members of the Oath Keepers entered the Capitol as a single team, in stack formation, a single-file military tactic, and some of them later clashed with law enforcement. Prosecutors showed the members of stationing equipment and weapons just outside Washington the day and, that day and planning to ferry them into the city to support the group's operations, though ultimately they didn't do so. Later on Friday, Meta sentenced another Oath Keepers defendant, Kenneth Harrelson, to four years in prison. The judge said Harrelson, an Army veteran from Titusville, Florida, had a limited role in the Oath Keepers conspiracy and hadn't posted the sort of violent rhetoric in group chats that other defendants did. Hollywood levels up with video game bet. The Super Mario Bros. movie, based on the Nintendo Mega franchise about Mario and Luigi, Italian-American plumbers from a cartoon Brooklyn, has dominated the box office since its April 5th release, grossing more than $1.15 billion globally. That makes it not only the biggest film of the year, but the most financially successful video game adaptation of all time. Its success comes in the midst of a broader flourishing of gaming intellectual property, with studios picking stories and characters from PlayStation, Xbox, and Nintendo and spitting them into cinematic gold. Over the last 20 years, Hollywood was obsessed with adapting IP, but they started with Western folklore and fairy tales. We saw King Arthur movies, Peter Pan movies, a Hercules movie. Now, they mostly didn't work, said Matthew Ball, the former head of strategy at Amazon Studios, who is now CEO of the production company Epilon Younger. Epilon. Younger and international audiences didn't latch to those stories, Ball said. So just as Hollywood started to look for new globally resonant IPs, they could adapt. We saw an influx of narratively rich games. Ball pointed to The Last of Us, a 2013 video game set in a pandemic where players must fight zombified, infected, and make ethically fraught decisions in order to survive. When its TV adaptation was released by HBO this year, the show became a critical and commercial hit, with a premiere that drew HBO's largest debut audience since the Game of Thrones spinoff House of the Dragon. In 2019, Netflix's adaptation of the acclaimed role-playing game The Witcher became a fixture of the streamer's top 10 list. Sonic the Hedgehog, the classic Sega game, made a fruitful jump to the silver screen with two films released in 2020 and 2022 that made more than $700 million combined at the box office. Ball believes this is the beginning of a new consensus in Hollywood. Just like Marvel superheroes in the deserts of Iraqis, video games are closing in the cultural mainstream. 
More licenses from the $200 billion game industry are coming down the pipeline. Before the end of 2023, audiences will be greeted by District 9 director Neil Blomkopf's take on the Gran Turismo racing games and horror powerhouse Bloomhouse's interpretation of the cult slash simulator Five Nights at Freddy's. These auteurist treatments are a far cry from the corny low-budget video game adaptations of yore. Witness the 2005 take on the horror classic Alone in the Dark with its rare 1%ing on Rotten Tomatoes. There was a lack of respect for storytelling in gaming. There was a lot. Hey kid, thanks a lot. I'm going to take your IP and turn it into a TV series, said Catherine Pope, president of Sony Pictures Television Studios, which shepherded The Last of Us to HBO Prestige. She characterized the recent shift in favoring game IP as enormous. The biggest hurdle was convincing the game community that there are partners in Hollywood that respect them as artists, said Dimitri Johnson, the CEO of DJ2 Entertainment, which recently scored a hit with the Sonic films. DJ2 Entertainment is currently involved with a number of Tomb Raider projects based on the renowned PlayStation Adventure games, including an animated series, a new video game, and an Amazon TV show written by Fleabag creator Phoebe Waller-Bridge. This will be the fourth time Tomb Raider will be imported to live-action media following the early aughts films starring Angelina Jolie and a 2018 title with Alicia Vikander. Johnson said that Crystal Dynamics, the longtime developer, development studio behind the Tomb Raider games, agreed to collaborate after being ensured that the company would have a real creative input on the vision which had been diminished in the past. In the past, it was, give me that cool thing you made and let the experts do it, Johnson said. These people created something you care about, enough to adapt, they should have a voice. A representative for Nintendo said the Super Mario Brothers movie aimed to spark interest among consumers who don't own our systems and that the company will continue to invest in entertainment expansion initiatives to broaden their appeal, including its animated film division, Nintendo Pictures. At Sony, where games are there and their companion films are made in-house, executives imagine something of an entertainment singularity in the future, where video games, TV shows, and feature films will exist in the same creative ecosystem. This is Sony's big move. We want to turn our IP into global franchises by using all the arms of Sony, said Asad Kujbash, head of the company's PlayStation Productions. We see ourselves as just one spoke in a very exciting entertainment wheel. You've been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 27th through 28th issue of the Wall Street Journal. We read from the Wall Street Journal every Monday through Thursday at 11 p.m. Your reader has been Edwin J. Vieira. Thank you for listening.